Amen. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's give it up for Cassidy, our worship team, and Ivy Farley. That was just amazing. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open it with me to the book of Ephesians. I'm really excited about this series that we're entering into, My Identity in Christ. Who am I now that I am a Christian? Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is the truth? The truth is not a what as much as a who. Jesus Christ. And when we have an encounter with Christ so that we're in Christ, Christ is in us, our identity is in Christ. A quick review, last week we talked about Colossians 3.3. We are hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden with Christ in God. We are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, and all throughout the, 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 the book of Ephesians, we see over and over these two words, in Christ. So our identity is not about our actions, what we've done or what we do. Our identity is not even about our convictions, who we think we are or who other people think that we are. Our identity is not about our actions or our convictions. Our identity is about our location. Where are we? And what are those two words? In Christ. Which means Christ's identity is the believer's identity. What is Christ's identity? The Father said, this is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. So we see that Christ's identity is a son of, the son of God. Christ's identity is loved by God. Christ's identity, the son of God, is that he is rejoiced over and delighted in by the father of God. And Christ's identity is that he has all power and authority. And what is our identity? Remember, it's not our actions, anything we've done or are doing now. What is our identity? Remember, it's not our convictions, what we think about ourselves from time to time, because that fluctuates, or what other people think about us or say about us or do to us. What is our identity? Remember, it's not about our actions, it's not about our convictions, it's about what? A location. Two words, in Christ. We are in Christ. Therefore, Christ's identity is our identity. What is our identity? In Christ. You are loved. In Christ. You are fully accepted as the Father rejoices over you. In Christ, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You're a prince. You're a princess. In Christ, you have all authority that has been given to you. Jesus said, nothing can snatch you out of my hands. Did you realize that? Nothing can alter this identity. Because once you're a believer, as a caterpillar is no more, it becomes a butterfly, so the old is gone. It ceases to exist. You are new, no matter your actions, no matter your convictions or others' convictions about you. Your identity is firmly secure and irrevocable in your location. And what is your location? In Christ. You are loved, you're rejoiced over, you're delighted in, you're celebrated, you're the child of God, and all power and authority of Christ has been given to you and entrusted to you. So with that review, let's pick up with the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. 
And we're going to see that the Father predestined us. We're going to see that the Son paid for us and the Spirit empowers us. So let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that none of us would leave the same. We would all be transformed because we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. When we know the truth of our identity and the truth of who we are in Christ, we walk in the fullness of liberty. And in the same way, we are in bondage in direct proportion to the lies that we believe. The lies about who we are. The lies about how you perceive us. The lies about our our destiny. So this morning we pray for our spiritual eyes to be opened and we would see the truth of who we are in Christ so that we can walk in fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday evening, I asked the question, how many of you know who Benjamin Kyle is? Raise your hand. And nobody raised their hand then either. And I said, it's okay because Benjamin Kyle doesn't even know who Benjamin Kyle is. Benjamin Kyle is a name that a man in his 60s made up for himself because he was beaten, a true story, in 2004, stripped totally naked, robbed, left behind a garbage dump behind Burger King. He had no identification on him. Nobody knew who he was. He was featured in various nationwide magazines. He was even featured on the Dr. Phil show. Nobody came forward to say, yes, we identify this man. Yes, we know this man. He was beaten so severely that he lost all memory of who he was. He assumed that maybe he worked in the restaurant business because he knew how to work some equipment back in the kitchen. Other than that, he had no idea who he was. And for 11 years, he assumed the name Benjamin Kyle because the initials BK matched up with Burger King. And that's what people called him in his new life. But he had no idea who he was. Can you imagine that? But did you know that that is the purpose of the enemy? The book of Ephesians is about our identity in Christ, but not only that, it's a book about spiritual warfare, because we exhaustively made the theological point last week that the focal point of spiritual warfare is our identity. Satan wants to beat the socks off of us in spiritual battle to cause us to forget about who we are in Christ. Because Jesus said, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. And to whatever proportion that we're believing lies, to that very degree, we walk in bondage, we walk in depression, we walk in sorrow, we walk in guilt, we walk in fear. We don't walk in the fullness of who we are in Christ. So let's look at who we are in Christ. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He makes no apologies about who he is in Christ. He persecuted the church. He drug men, women, and children by their hair off to prison, beating them, uh, overseeing their martyrdom. And he makes no apologies that he's new. He's not that person. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You see, who we are in Christ is not something that we achieve. It's something that we graciously receive and upon salvation, and then we dare to believe 
as we learn to walk with Christ. This is our identity in Christ. Let me repeat this. Our identity in Christ is nothing that we achieve. It's something that we freely receive in an instant upon our salvation, and then we dare to believe as we grow in Christ in sanctification. This is our identity in Christ. So that the very worst of sinners, as Paul said about himself, the chief of sinners, can boldly declare himself to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Because it's not by his will, it's by the will of God. His identity, like your identity, is nothing that you achieve, it's something you freely receive upon salvation, and then dare to believe as you walk that out in sanctification in your relationship with Christ. To the saints, to the saints, this word saint means something different in the Catholic Church because it's not consistent with biblical truth. It means that you've performed two or three miracles in your lifetime, and then your name after like seven years after your death has ascended the the ranks and various meetings about how you lived, and these miracles that you performed were confirmed, and then the Pope will stamp sainthood on you. It's utterly absurd, it's utterly man-made, it's completely a lie, it is inconsistent with Scripture. The word saints, again, is nothing that we achieve. It is something that we freely receive upon the moment of salvation and dare to believe as we walk this out in our sanctification for the glory of God. To the saints, the word actually means it's set apart. You're chosen, you're set apart to be used by God. Who are in Ephesus, for us today, this would read to the saints who are in Fort Worth and, the, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, let's unpack three truths about our identity in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians deal largely with doctrine, with theology, and then the remaining three chapters deal with how we walk this out in practical terms in our daily life. First of all, the Father predestined you. This is awesome. The Father predestined you. You are chosen by God. Let's read about it in verse 3. This is one of many really awesome reasons why we walk through Scripture verse by verse and chapter by chapter, because this truth about being predestined, about being chosen, is one that's pretty weighty and it's pretty deep, so it's something that we might skip right past and talk about something that's more uh, comfortable. But this is a truth that that we have to grapple with and we have to understand in order to walk out our freedom by believing the truth of who we are in Christ. So the Father predestined us. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, here's that word chose, even as he chose us in him. Watch this, before the foundation of the world. So how many of you lived before the world was created? Raise your hand. None of us, right. It might feel that way sometimes, but none of us were alive before the foundation of the world. And yet, when did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. 
This means that God chose us before we ever had an opportunity to prove ourselves. The Lord God chose us before we ever did anything to earn or merit that choosing. God the Father chose us knowing every mistake and failure that we would ever make. So God chose us not for what we could do for him. God chose us for what he would do in us. God never chose us on the basis of our merit. God chose us on the basis of his grace. Because again, our identity is not about anything that we achieve. It's something that we receive upon salvation and dare to walk out in our sanctification. And we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were in the heart of God. We were in the mind of God. We were chosen by God and therefore God predestined us. This means that God again chose us based upon not what we could do, but what he would do through us on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of our works. So I'm really proud of my nephew. He is in pole vaulting, and last weekend he was in Lubbock for regionals, and he did amazing. He jumps with the pole vault, he jumps 16 feet. Amazing, isn't it? And so he's on his way to state this next weekend, which is really awesome. And so you go to a meet like that, and you see all these incredible athletes, and, and there are college scouts there, and people are looking for the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the smartest, in order to recruit to their colleges and sign them. But this doctrine about us being chosen means God didn't choose us because of what we did. Because we were the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the, the most righteous, the most holy, the most outstanding, the most gifted, the most talented. God chose us in just the opposite manner that the world chooses. This past Thursday night, we were having a young adult Bible study. I'm an honorary member. I, I get to go because I teach the Bible study sometimes. And I thought it'd be a good idea to have a race. <laughs> And five strides into this race, I'm reminded I'm only an honorary member of this group here. <laughs> five strides. I'm thinking I'm going to lose 25 pounds, get back in shape. And I stopped running. Five strides. The good news is, the way God chooses, if God were choosing a track team, he would have chosen me, guys. And the reason is because he doesn't choose for our ability. He chooses for our weakness because the weaker we are, the least able we are, the most in need we are, then the most grace we receive and the more God receives glory through our lives. If you see somebody being used by God in a great way, it's not because they earned it. It's not because they deserved it. Just the opposite. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. Their only hope was God choosing the weakest, the least. And God chose the weakest and least and used them greatly for his glory. This is what it means to be chosen. This is what it means to be predestined. There's a poem I... I like to read from time to time around here to remind us that God chooses the weak, the least... As the Apostle Paul said about himself, he said, God didn't choose me for me. I was persecuting the church. God chose me for my weakness and my sinfulness because God's grace rests upon that weakness. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which would he choose? 
Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value, and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be best. The master passed on with no word at all. He looked at a silver urn, narrow and tall. I'll serve you, dear master. I'll pour out your wine, and I'll be at your table whenever you dine. My lines are so graceful, my carving so true, and my silver will always compliment you. Unheeding, the master passed on to the vessel of brass, wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel, I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my content so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride, and I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you, you use me for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay, empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend it and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one that is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one that is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor one who displays his content so proud, not the one who thinks he can do things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended it and cleansed it and filled it that day, spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour into you. Awesome poem, isn't it? This is how God chooses. God is looking for the weak, the broken, the fallen, the afraid. And he wants to raise them up as trophies of his grace. That's where God's anointing resides. That means that there's hope. There's hope for anybody. There's hope for everybody who's fallen, who's stumbled, who's made mistakes. All we have to do is surrender our life to Christ, and we are his chosen vessels filled with his grace and a display and trophy of his grace being poured out upon other broken vessels of clay. How do you perceive that the Father looks at you? Do you perceive that the Father looks at you full of mercy and grace and love? Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Which means, to whatever proportion that we as followers of Christ are believing lies about God or ourselves, to that same degree, we're walking in bondage. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So whatever degree of lies that you're buying into about God or about yourself, to that degree, you're walking in bondage. You're walking in sorrow, fear, addiction, sin patterns. The list goes on and on. So if you have something to write down, jot these identities down and the references with them. If not, uh, go out this week and get a wonderful book by Neil T. Anderson called The Bondage Breaker. I renounce the lie that my Father God is distant 
and uninterested in me. And I joyfully accept the truth that my Father God is intimate and involved in my life. Psalm chapter 139. I renounce the lie. And as I read through these, if you're believing these lies about God or about yourself and how God views you in Jesus' name, under your breath or out loud, renounce this lie and receive the truth and say, I believe this truth of who I am to the Father. I renounce the lie that my Father God is insensitive and uncaring toward me. And I joyfully accept the truth that my Father God is kind and compassionate. Psalm 103. I renounce the lie that my Father God is stern and demanding. And I joyfully accept the truth that my Father God is accepting and filled with joy and love. Romans 15, 7. I renounce the lie that my Father God is passive and cold. And I joyfully accept the truth that my Father God is warm and affectionate. Isaiah 40. I renounce the lie that my Father God is absent and too busy for me. And I accept the truth that my Father God is always with me and eager to be with me. Psalm 139. And for any of these truths, there's a hundred places in Scripture that we could point. I renounce the lie that my Father God is never satisfied with what I do, but impatient or angry. And I joyfully accept the truth that my Father God is patient and slow to anger. Recently heard about a son, true story about a son in a little league baseball game, and he first time up he hit a he hit the ball. First pitch he hit it, slammed the ball. It's a foul ball. Second pitch, he hit the ball, slammed it out of the ballpark, home run. And after the game, he thought that his father would maybe embrace him, give him a high five, hug him, say good job. That didn't happen. His father said. So, which it was better, the first or the second? And the son said, well, the second. He said, yeah, don't, don't hit any more foul balls. Can you believe that? That is completely opposite of the father. I renounce the lie that my father God is trying to take all the fun out of my life. And I fully accept the truth that my father God is trustworthy and wants to give me a full life. I renounce the lie that my Father God is controlling and manipulative, and I joyfully accept that my Father God is full of grace and mercy. He gives us freedom to fail. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, John writes to the church, Christians, he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And John, the eldest living of all the apostles, writes so tenderly, like a great-grandfather to you, and says, of course you're going to stumble. Of course you're going to make mistakes. But when you do, confess, and you'll be cleansed of all unrighteousness. I renounce the lie that my Father God is condemning or unforgiving, and I joyfully accept the truth that my Father God is tender-hearted and forgiving. His heart and arms are always open to me. The beautiful parable of this prodigal son, or the prodigal uh, sons and the broken heart of God. I renounce the lie that my father God is nitpicking, exacting, or perfectionistic. And I joyfully accept the truth that my father God 
is committed to my growth and proud of me as his growing child. Is that your perception of the Father God toward you? That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Scripture. If you just want to uh, read more and just immerse yourself and be in, in concentrated Scripture about your identity in the Father God and the Father's heart over you, jot down Psalm 139. Read that this week. Reread that this week. Jot down Psalm chapter 23. Read it. Reread it this week. Jot down Psalm chapter 51. Read that this week. Reread that this week. Did I say Psalm 139? Be sure to read that one. So, in Christ, the Father God has chosen us. Isn't that awesome? And He's filled us with His might and His power. But not only that, in Christ, the Son of God has paid for our sins with his own blood. Let's continue to read and let's look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. This word redemption is used uh, many different ways, many times in scripture from the first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible. Redemption, ransomed. Uh, Jesus was our atonement. Jesus was our sacrificial atonement. Jesus was our substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus paid for our sins with his own blood on the cross. This is an incredible truth. We don't have to pay for our sins because Jesus paid for for our sins with his own blood on the cross. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which, watch this word, he lavished upon us. What does this word lavished mean? It means not just the amount of grace that you need. For example, if you're going to sin a thousand times, you don't receive enough grace to cover a thousand sins. It means if you're going to sin a thousand times, you receive enough grace to cover ten thousand times 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 ten thousand to the infinite power times ten thousand times ten thousand times ten thousand sins. That means he doesn't give you just a proper uh, allocated amount of grace. He lavishes his grace upon you. That's grace on top of grace on top of grace on top of grace. That's the literal translation for grace. It's grace on top of grace on top of grace. In other words, if you have a thimble, you know the little thing that goes over your thumb when you sew? If you have a thimble and you want to fill the thimble up with water, lavished grace doesn't mean that you put it under a water faucet that's dripping until the thimble is full. Lavished grace means that you go to Niagara Falls and you stand under Niagara Falls with a thimble. In other words, God lavishes his forgiveness, his love, his mercy, his second chances over and over upon your life. Through the blood of Christ, faith in one drop of the blood of Christ shed for you upon the cross causes his grace to lavish upon our lives. So let's look at who we are in Christ. In Christ, I renounce the lie that I am rejected, unloved, dirty, or shameful, because in Christ, I am completely accepted. In Christ, remember this is our identity, it's nothing that we achieve, it's something we receive upon salvation and dare to believe today. This is something that we dare to believe today. You say, but I haven't had two weeks of solid, quiet times. I have to continue to feel like a horrible Christian. 
I haven't shared my faith this past week. I have to feel like a horrible Christian. I've been so busy. I have to, I feel like a horrible Christian. I, I stumbled just yesterday. I feel like a horrible Christian. So I need to achieve a little bit so I don't feel like a horrible Christian. No, no. What's the basis of our identity? Our identity is not about our actions. Our identity is not about our convictions about ourselves or other people's convictions about us. Our identity is about our location. And what is our location? Two words. Anybody? In Christ. In Christ, I renounce the lie that I am rejected, unloved, dirty, shameful, because in Christ, I am completely accepted by God. You didn't achieve it. You received this identity upon salvation. And I dare you today to dare to believe this and walk this out. In Christ, I am God's child. In Christ, I am Christ's friend. In Christ, I have been justified. In Christ, I am united with the Lord, and I am one spirit with him. In Christ, I've been bought with a price. I belong to God. In Christ, I am a member of Christ's body. In Christ, I am a saint, a holy one. Not because of three miracles and after your death, people testified to it and the Pope stamped it as so. No, you're a saint, holy and righteous and forgiven and heaven-bound and set apart for God's use because of what Christ did on the cross. I am a saint, a holy one. In Christ, I've been adopted as God's child. In Christ, I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. In Christ, I renounce the lie that I am guilty, unprotected, alone, or abandoned. Because in Christ, I am totally secure. God says, I am free forever from condemnation. Romans 8.1. There's not just a little condemnation. There's not less condemnation. There's no condemnation. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Those two words again. Our identity is not location, or our identity is not action or conviction, it's location. We are in Christ. In Christ, there is no condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for the good. I am free from any condemning charges. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I've been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that the good work God began in me will be perfected. I am hidden with Christ in God. I can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I renounce the lie that I am worthless, inadequate, helpless, or hopeless, because in Christ, I am deeply significant, God says. In Christ, I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In Christ, I am a branch of the true vine. In Christ, I have been a chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. In Christ, I am a personal spirit-empowered witness of Christ. In Christ, I am a temple of God. In Christ, I am a minister of reconciliation for God. In Christ, I am God's co-worker. In Christ, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In Christ, I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Christ, I may approach God's throne with boldness and confidence. In Christ, I can do all things who strengthens me. That's who we are in Christ. So I gave you some passages to review this week about the Father's heart toward you. Jot this passage down and review this 
chapter this week about who you are in Christ. In Christ. Read Romans chapter 8. Reread Romans chapter 8. Reread Romans chapter 8 again and pray its truths over your life. And if there's anything that you read in Romans chapter 8 that's inconsistent with your conscience, that nagging voice that makes you feel worthless, stupid, uh, a, a waste, then renounce that in Jesus' name and pray to walk in the truths that are unpacked in Romans chapter 8. The Father has predestined us. The Son has paid for our sins with His blood. And the Spirit empowers us. This is who we are in Christ. The Father has predestined us. The Son has paid for us. And now the Spirit has empowered us. Verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is really incredible. You look at this world today, and it sort of looks like a symphony that's warming up before the concert actually begins. <laughs> there's a bunch of noise, there's a bunch of contradiction, there's a bunch of uh, people playing over one another, there's a bunch of disharmony, there's a bunch of disunity, but when the maestro raises his wand, then everybody comes into agreement, and there's a beautiful music, there's a beautiful symphony. And in the same way, our world today is chaotic and it's cruel and it's backbiting and it's sarcastic and it's cynical and it's lustful and it's abusive and it's hateful. But one day Christ will return and it will be like a symphony and the lion will lie next to the lamb and everything will come under Christ's complete authority. The Father is bringing everything into conformity with His authority to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, in Him we've obtained an, an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of Him who, watch this, here's the maestro bringing the confusion to perfect peace, bringing the hatefulness to perfect love. He works all things according to the will and the counsel of His will, so that he, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Listen to this. When you dare to believe the Father's heart toward you, in spite of you, when you dare to believe who you are in Christ, even though you don't deserve that identity, when you dare to be audacious about your identity in Christ, it brings Christ incredible glory. Nothing could bring Christ more glory than that. It doesn't bring Christ glory when we've had a perfect week and we boast of our own ability. It brings Christ glory when we dare to believe the truth of our identity in Christ. And when we dare to believe the truth of our identity in Christ, guess what? We begin to behave just like Christ. And people can't distinguish. Is that them or is that Christ in us? Because that sure looks like Christ. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. But we don't think about ourselves as being loved and secure. When we have earned it, we receive it, and we dare to believe it, and then that identity will begin flowing out of us, out of our convictions, out of our love, out of our passion, out of our prayers. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. There's our identity again, in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked with the seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is awesome. The moment you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, the moment you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved, you've been given a gift. The Holy Spirit moved into your heart. Sometimes it's emotional. There's a teenage girl. Once uh, there's a group of kids at Central Market, and we led these kids to Christ, and this girl immediately started crying. She didn't know what was happening to her, so she tried to laugh out the cry. And then the laugh took over the cry, and she thought that was funny, so she started laughing again, but then the cry took over the laugh, and she says, what's happening to me? I said, well, the Holy Spirit just came into your heart. Sometimes it's very emotional. Sometimes it's very matter-of-fact. Led an attorney to the Lord once in his 60s. He prayed to receive Christ, wiped a tear from his eyes, and he said, that was very powerful, thank you. (laughs) It's not about feeling, it's about faith. When we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved at that moment, the Holy Spirit of Christ enters our heart and begins living life through us. And then Paul prays an incredible prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. And this prayer is that the Holy Spirit would do this work in their heart so they can see who they are in Christ. They can see the Father's heart toward them. And they can see the power in the Holy Spirit that is now available to them. Verse 15. For this reason, this is a great prayer, by the way, to pray for your friends who are lost, for your friends who are prodigals, for your friends who are living in addiction or sin patterns, or for your friends who are walking in depression or sorrow. This is a great prayer to pray. A great way to study Scripture, by the way, is studying the prayers of Paul. Verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then this is the prayer that he prays for them. That the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having your eyes and your hearts enlightened so that you may know the hope of your calling. There's a story about a man who always wanted to go on a cruise, and he saved up all of his money, and so he's on this cruise. I mean, everything, and he bought that ticket, and he was looking so forward to this cruise. Well, the, the day for the, the, the cruise came around, and he gave him the ticket, and he walked on board, and he was just taking it in because the ship looked like a, a city. And he was just walking around at the swimming pool and the games and the activities. and Well, but, but the man spent all of his money on the ticket. He didn't save any money for food, <laughs> for meals. And it's a two-week cruise. So he has a backpack of crackers. And then he begins noticing all of the food. I mean, the lobster and the shrimp and the steaks and all of the fancy drinks that go with it. And he looks at him, and his mouth waters, and his stomach growls, and then he goes back into his room, and he eats crackers. (laughs) And that's how he lives for two weeks. And then the last day of the cruise, he's walking out, and he sees some of that lobster. His mouth is watering. And he sees the waiter. He says, excuse me, I've been here for two weeks. I'm about to leave. I spent all my money on the ticket. I've just been living on crackers, but man, that lobster sure looks good. I sure wanted to try. Can I have just a little bit? And to that, the waiter looked at him like he was crazy. He said, your ticket was all-inclusive. 
included all of the meals, all of the buffets for these two weeks. Guys, our salvation is all-inclusive. It is. It includes all of the love of God, all of the forgiveness of God, all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all of the power of the Holy Spirit, all of the peace of God, all of the freedom to walk in righteousness, all of the freedom to pray and move the mountains that block our path. It's all-inclusive. All of the right to storm the throne room of heaven and make our requests known. This is the power that's within us. Paul says, you want to know how powerful this power is? Verse 19. What is the immeasurable... In other words, it can't be measured. I'm quite the theologian, aren't I? (laughs) It's immeasurable. It cannot be measured. This the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand to the heavenly places. We preach a lot about the resurrection power. We don't think too often about the ascension power. But when Paul is describing the power that's available to us, this immeasurably great power, it is the resurrection power. It raised Christ from the dead. But not only that, it's ascension power. It's the same power that caused Christ to ascend and to be seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. This is our resurrection power. We're born again. We're new creatures. But not only that, it's an ascension power. We rise above the chaos and the sorrow and the confusion of the, of, of the things around us in this world. This is the power. It's a resurrection power, and it's an ascension power so that we can rise above anything that comes against us. And we can walk with freedom and boldness and authority and power in the midst of it. This morning was beautiful, wasn't it? Driving to church, did anybody else think what an absolutely beautiful day? Or when you got out of your car and were walking into the building, what an absolutely beautiful day. Aren't the most beautiful days followed by the most stormy days? But it's the, it's the rain and it's the storm that causes the, the, the freshness in the air and the cleanness in the ground and it causes the, the, the new blossoms to, blo- to, to bud, the new buds to blossom. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit invades our heart and causes new life to grow. And the more grace that you've needed, the more beauty that's going to blossom in your life. We are in Christ. This is our identity. It's not about our actions. Not even our actions this morning. It's not about our convictions. Luke said, have you ever looked in the mirror and said, who is this person? This is something that Satan will do. 
He causes life around us to be like, like one of those uh, funny rooms in the, in the circus. What are they called with all the mirrors? The fun rooms with the mirrors? You look in one mirror and it makes you like twice as tall and like this skinny. And you look at another mirror, it makes you like two feet shorter and this wide. And some mirrors make you wavy. Satan has put mirrors all around us. This is his primary tool in spiritual warfare. He puts mirrors all around us that distort and pervert our true identity. But when we look in, as James called it, the perfect mirror of the Word of God, we see that our identity is not about our actions or convictions or what we think when we look in a distorted mirror in this world. Our identity is about our location, and our location is in Christ. And Jesus said, nothing can snatch you out of my hands. No event can snatch you out of my hands. Nothing can snatch us out of Christ's hands. We are loved. We are accepted. We are rejoiced over. We are called. We're chosen. We have divine favor upon our lives. We have power. We have authority. Because God the Father predestined us. God the Son paid for us with his own blood. And God the Spirit has empowered us. So please read those passages this week about who you are in Christ. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Would you stand with me, please? This is the identity of every saint. And you're a saint the moment you receive Christ. One theologian said, you're either a saint or you ain't. There's nothing in between. (laughs) And so if you ain't and ain't, then you are a saint. And if you're a saint, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What an identity. But if you're not a saint, then you're still an ain't. (laughs) And that means that you're dead in your sins. See, salvation isn't about being better. It's about being born again. It's not, it's not about cleaning yourself up. It's about becoming a new creature, a new creation. Jesus said you have to be born again. And so I want to invite you to become a saint right now by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you would bow your heads with me. And in your heart, just say, Father. In fact, everybody pray this audibly, boldly, to encourage the person next to you. God, I know that I've sinned. And I am dead in my sins. And I've been separated from you. But thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for paying for my sins on the cross. And thank you for promising to give me your Holy Spirit. I turn to you, Jesus. I look at your work on the cross as payment for my sins. Thank you for paying the price. Come into my life, Jesus. I I receive your spirit. And I confess you as Lord of my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Take over my life. Help me to grow as a new Christian. You know, baptism is a beautiful expression of our identity in Christ. You go under the water, and that's a picture that every sin you've ever committed or will ever commit is buried with Christ. Jesus conquered death. When Jesus died, so did your sin. And Jesus was resurrected, but your sin stayed dead. And you go under the water, and it's a picture that your sins are dead. 
fact, Jose's following Jesus in baptism this morning, and Jose said, hey, when you, when you put me under, put me under for extra long. <laughs> I said, I'll do it. <laughs> when you're under the water, that old life is extra dead. It's just dead. It's a, that, that's what it's a picture of. And you come up out of the water, and it's a picture that you are a new creature. You're new in Christ. How do you know that you're new in Christ? How do you know that you know that you know? Because you know. The Spirit bears witness in your heart, First John. You know. I write these things that you know that you're a child of God. And the evidence of it, and your friends know, because you follow Jesus in baptism. And so if you would like to follow Jesus in baptism, we're going to worship, and then right after that, we're going to head right out, and we'll gather up around the baptistry. So we're done a little early. Don't slip out and beat the Church of Christ people to the restaurants. Just <laughs> hang out. Hang out at the baptistry, and we'll celebrate this together. So let's worship Jesus for our new life in Christ. And and pray, Lord, just pray, pray as we worship. God, help me to walk this out. Help me to boldly believe my identity in Christ.